0: This is Episode 5 with Soban Etemadi. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Soban Etemadi is a founder and CEO of Sobi Systems. Sobe Systems is focused on developing innovative smart home product solutions using advanced sensor technologies for residential HVAC systems. Prior to founding Sobe Systems, Soban was an entrepreneur at Next36, worked at Pratt & Whitney Canada, as well as Bombardier Inc. Soban holds a PhD in aerospace, aeronautical, and astronautical space engineering from Ryerson University. On this episode, I talked to Soban about how he knew he wanted to start his own company, the impact that his family had on his career and life decisions, and his love for outdoor rock climbing. Hey Soban, how's, how's it going? Not too bad, Justin. Thanks for having me. Good. Thanks. Welcome to the podcast. Um, I know things are super busy with you now, so I appreciate you um, putting aside some time to, to share more about your story. No worries. Um, I'm really excited. Yeah, thanks for joining. I think, you know, I'd love to start off with um, something that I discovered while doing some research, and it's more on your personal life, which is um, you are an adventurer. You love the outdoors. I've seen photos of you climbing uh, rocks. <laughs> <laughs> climbing rocks, yep. <laughs> Can you share a little bit more about uh, where that passion for rock climbing and, and just being outdoors uh, started came from? from? Yeah.
1: Sure. Um...
0: Honestly, it's, it's, I think outdoors is something
1: I've always loved growing up. I um, always played soccer, whether I was in um, middle school or well, younger than that. Um, I remember when I was in middle school, I'd venture off with a few of my friends. So my parents bought me a mountain bike. And I'd venture off during lunchtime with some of my friends just to go down some hills. And then by the, by the next session or the next class, we'd come back. Um, I, I really liked the outdoors growing up. Um, but funny enough like i 've never ventured off in Canada and gone mm-hmm. like backpacking or anything like that but as as, as I got older, um, soccer became more of a thing that I really enjoyed doing so all throughout high school, I played soccer, uh, used to do track and field uh, so tried to stay quite active, and um, it kind of changed though when I started university because everything was just focused on school and academia and Soccer kind of something that I loved doing, like 24-7. It wouldn't matter if it was summer or winter, we'd be playing soccer with my friends. Um, But once university started, that kind of just fell apart back in 2007. And I never even touched a soccer ball for like two, three years in undergrad. And studied my master's, and I realized there was a lot of stress on me. Mm -hmm. You know, I just want to be the way it was before. I want to have fun the way I used to. And so um, tried to pick up soccer again, and granted, you know, you've been away from it for, for so long, it wouldn't work. <laughs> so uh, rock climbing is something I started to get into. Uh, one of my friends introduced me to it. I, I like to climb things, pick things up, try to do, you know, acrobats or whatever. And so um, I started rock climbing and kind of fell in love with the idea of solving problems because, you know, you, you're, you're trying to go up a route, and you could be at it for weeks or you could be at it for two seconds if you know how to do the right sequence of moves and so it's something that kind of became more of like a problem solving thing if I got stressed I'd you know grab my gear go rock climbing at the gym um, just sit there look at a problem figure out how to solve it and granted it would get aggravating sometimes because you couldn't get something but it just it just went okay now this is the technique I need to improve I need to improve my strength in this area and so it's something I've always loved doing Um, and camping is something huge as well um we go camping every year with with my brother my my girlfriend and some of our closest friends and it just lets me disconnect from everything else so we go backcountry camping we go portaging deep deep into the woods we're going to algonquin park now Uh, We do that every year it's kind of like a tradition that we do and kind of just lets me take you know my cell phone get no reception don't worry about anything just enjoy the outdoors and kind of reflect on myself
0: Mm. and is that how you kind of counterbalance um your current life as a founder and entrepreneur um, and also being very much embedded in this technologically centric society, spending time outdoors, is that your way to counterbalance that? I try to, um, but that balance has probably been the toughest part of this entire process.
1: Having that work-life balance has been incredibly challenging. Um, it's something I'm working on improving. And you know, when I started the, the company, that kind of gave up a lot of things. You know, I gave up spending time with my family, gave up spending time with my friends. Um, now I see my parents like once every other week, right? Just mm-hmm. maybe on a weekend if I can. But going outdoors was something that I always want to do. Like if I can go outdoors, whether it's between meetings, I'm enjoying that process of walking between meetings, um, just getting that fresh air because I'm cooped up inside all day. And so that's what I'm taking away from it, just enjoying being outside as much as I can. But I'm trying to get back into the whole regimen of, hey, okay, let's make working out consistent. Let's make being active consistent. Uh, Wake up early, go to the gym now. Um, And so that's something I've gone back into a routine that I'm trying to work on. But it takes some time, I think. Getting that work-life balance is quite difficult when you have to manage a company that you're trying to start from scratch.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Or it can also feel indulgent, right? Like if you take 30 to 60 minutes out of your day to go to the gym or, or go climbing. Um, you know, they're investors, they're employees, there's your own expectations that you have to hold yourself against. So it can be really hard, I imagine, to take that time out for yourself to recharge in order to give back to other people.
1: 100%, you, you feel that way all the time. And it's, what you have to understand is at the end of the day, um, the process itself is gonna be strenuous for b- building whatever company or whatever idea you have. And you need to take time for yourself because you need to maintain your health. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to go to the gym, set some time, even if, like you say, even if it's 30 minutes, just being able to sit for 30 minutes or just concentrate, meditate, do yoga, uh, go to the gym, I think it's absolutely amazing. And I feel a lot better these past couple months that I've gone back
0: into a regimen for it. So it um, feels amazing. And and the warmer weather should help too. In absolutely. That you to more options to be active outside.
1: Exactly. Go outside and run and go outside and go rock climbing, not just the gyms anymore.
0: Yeah. That's great. Um, So before we kind of dig into um, some of your work specifically at Sobe Systems, share a little bit more about your background. Um, So we know that you got your PhD in aerospace engineering. But if we could rewind back to your early childhood, what was your upbringing like? Um, What type of family environment were you raised in? And also, if you could talk a little bit more about your journey um, from Iran to Canada, that would be really helpful. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was born in Iran,
1: and then my parents immigrated to Canada back in 94, and um, I don't remember much about that process of coming here, I just remember that my dad came here first before, uh, before my brother, my mom, and I, so I hadn't seen my dad for a few months. And when my brother, my mom and I finally came to Canada, I, was, I remember that moment when I saw my dad, I was beyond thrilled because I hadn't seen someone that I loved so much. And, you know, as a, as a child, these feelings stay with you. Um, and when we came to Canada, it was, it was really my parents doing this for my brother and I so that they can give us a better life than what was going on in Iran and give us an opportunity to have a better life for ourselves. Um, and So that was, that was very generous of them to do for my brother and I. And so they came here. Uh, in 94. And I remember the very first class, the kindergarten or senior kindergarten or whatever it was that I was going to, that very first day that I walked in, I cried and ran back out. Um, I, 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 I remember that specifically. I ran back and I told my mom, like, I don't want to be here because I didn't speak English. Um, I had no idea what was going on. But my mom was like, you know what, just go back in and try and I'll just wait here. If you need me, I'll be here. So my parents have always been like that growing up. They've always been there for my brother and myself. Um, they've always shown us like, the love and affection that, you know, that I could you know, ever ask for. Um, my mom herself, she, when she came to Canada, she didn't work. Um, it was really just taking care of my brother and I. But she started a few businesses on the side trying to um, get things going. So she had that entrepreneurial spirit as well. And so she started uh, like a kind of like an early bed and breakfast type Airbnb thing um, back in the days. And then, you know, managing the family, like myself, my brother was a bit more Chinese. So that's what she focused on, just growing my brother and myself. Um, and my dad just worked. So my dad, he, I remember he'd wake up at like 6 o'clock and still does, or even earlier. Um, he'd leave for work before 7 o'clock, he'd be gone. And this is me as a kid seeing this. My dad would be gone and... I wouldn't see him. I'd go to school, study, have my lunch, have my breaks, um, come back home. And then, you know, 11 o'clock at home, my dad would come home. And so I saw this, like, day in and day out. And he wouldn't take any breaks. He'd take a lunch with him to work. But then he'd come back and he'd still have his apple. He'd still have the sandwich he made. And and so seeing all this, um, it, you know, and, and, and growing up with it, it was just like I saw how much effort that my dad was putting in, my mom was putting in for us. And it was you know it it hurts when you see that and it's like you want to be able to get back to them so they can just relax and not have to worry about anything but you also want to make them proud um and i know that the one thing my parents always wanted is you know we want you to have a good education we came here so you can have a good education back in iran it's very competitive to get into university and once you do get there there's only you know one elite university you really go to um and again once you're there finding a job is very difficult so my parents kind of paved this road for me and my brother to to have a good education, to have a good life that we could create for ourselves here in Canada, um, you know, through their hard work. And I think that kind of goes for all parents that immigrated here. Um, they kind of came for the sense of a better life for not just themselves, but their kids and their children.
0: Mm. So it's a very um, academic-centric um, upbringing, as in it was very clear that grades were important? And... N-
1: no, not at all. Oh, That's really? the thing. So... They never cared if I got like a B or a C. It was just make sure you're doing your best in your learning. Um, I know my dad always loved for me to know math, right? So I remember in grade four, he'd sit down with me and he's the one who taught me the timetables. Um, and so when I went to grade, I think it was grade four, uh, I knew the timetables up till nine, where some of the people only knew to like five or six. So it, it, having that kind of um, support was nice. You would see that he was willing to help. I remember we'd have projects uh, we'd have to build like castles or something. He actually would spend the night building the parts of the castle for me. i would wake up in the morning and see, oh, okay, half of it's done to be all excited and have a really cool project to show. Um, so they always supported that educational system and having that ability to, you know, further your, your own development through education. But it was never like, you have to go become this. There's this stereotype of, you know, Persians are either lawyers, doctors, or engineers. And I think that mm-hmm. goes the same way with, like, the Asian culture. Um, but I don't, my parents were never like that. They do what you want to do because you love doing it mm. um, and, and will support you regardless. And so when growing up, for me, every, I, I was ripping things apart. I, I'd take boxes, break them apart. Granted, I couldn't put them back together, <laughs> but I'd break them apart, see what's inside it. And I was always captivated by that. Um, And, and, you know, in under and not in undergrad, but in middle school, there were classes that I take like design and technology or like circuits or a bit of coding just so that I could play with a little circuitry and build things for myself. Um, And that kind of trickled down into my own education. I'm like, you know, education is important. That's kind of something I came to self-realization of, I think, um, that having a good education is indeed important, but it's more of not just getting a degree. A degree doesn't really mean much to me. It's what do you get out of the degree. Um, you know you can have a PhD and I tell people that I have a PhD but it's just a piece of paper to me Um, it doesn't define me it doesn't mean anything it's just I spent more time in school focusing on one specific subject than some other people willing to put the time into Um, so it's just that dedication and hard work that I kind of saw growing up you know in my dad and my mom working so hard that
0: I think kind of affected me in the way that um, I was brought up Mm, that's amazing to hear and in terms of actually um, deciding to go into aerospace engineering, when did that become you know, a possibility for you? Was it much more organic or was it something that you knew relatively early in your your? So, so I always knew I wanted to do
1: something in engineering. I always loved space. Um, it was something that always captivated me, like looking up at the stars, I'm like, I wonder what's out there. Um, and I think it kind of became a natural transition into aerospace. And honestly, um, I remember the day in, it it was in grade 10 and it was like these civics and careers class that they offer here. You go in through classes, you do this online survey. It's like 60, 70 questions as part of this program, uh, as part of the course in, in high school. And then it gives you like your top five or six choices of what your ideal position would be. And believe it or not, that was like aerospace came up. It was one of the top three that it popped up at. And I was like oh, wow, aerospace, like, I love space. Aerospace sounds really cool. I didn't know much about it, um, but I'm like, it sounds really cool. And then in civics class, I started researching what it was. And I'm like, yeah, like, I want to design planes. I want to be able to design satellites. That's the type of thing I want to be doing. Um, I think I would really enjoy it. And so, naturally, I think I got captivated into the program, um, got accepted into Ryerson University, went there. And, um, you know, that was back in 2007 when I started. And when I finished Ryerson, it was 2017. So I spent a good third of my life at university in a very academic-focused environment. But during that entire process, I was staying active, you know, um, not just in school, but trying to find different things to do. Mm. Um, Even my master's, for instance, when I I finished my undergrad in 2011, um, I started my master's degree, but I was working really closely with one of the professors. And he's like, you know what, um, the research that you're doing, uh, we can have some other projects for you on the side. And I'm like, you know what, just say yes, because there's an opportunity. I don't know how to do it right now, but I'll learn it. So uh, I said yes to the opportunity and it was working for Bombardier. And so I worked for two years for Bombardier Instead instead doing a master's, I was working on a Bombardier project, uh, building a data acquisition system for the TTC. And so... That taught me a lot about the sensors, but even just the students themselves, the, the lab that I was involved in. I talked to the students, uh, pick up on, you know, small little details. What's a resistor? What's a capacitor? What are these things? How do you use them? And that's kind of how I started learning. And then when it came time to graduating from my, from my master's, I realized I didn't have a dissertation because I've been working on this project for Bombardier for two years. Um, I'd done my courses, but there was this project that I was working on on controlling satellites using fluid um, in in, in the space environment. And I thought to myself, well, I can probably create something even better than what we have today, uh, what I'm working on today, and I can turn that into a PhD. Or I could just hand in something and, you know, go to the workforce, have a master's degree. Um, and potentially go do an MBA, which is something I really want to do as well. But um, I'm like, you know what? I have an opportunity to do a PhD. I've always wanted to get a PhD. I don't know why. Um, never in my life have my parents said, you need a PhD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's something that was, like, in me. I'm like, I want to get that mm-hmm. ultimate degree that I can get. Um, and so I'm like, you know, what? I, I have this opportunity where I can save a year of my life because I don't have to retake courses again, and I can – transfer my credits over and just do the research and I have this great idea that I can be working on and so I spoke to the professor I spoke to the university and you know they accepted it and you know I I turned my master's into a PhD and started working on that and that's where we are and that kind of went on for a few years
0: and you know I think it's it's really inspiring and fascinating to hear because I think for a lot of um, new graduates sometimes a lot of uh, decisions are made to maximize uh, financial returns, especially, you know, if you're in debt and, and you need to take care of family. How important was that in your decision making process of like, well, I could either do another year or two and get a PhD or start working and, and making money? So
1: finances are always a hard thing. Um, like even right now, it's it's starting your own business. It's a struggle. Um, you know, m- like I don't come from a wealthy family and my dad works very, very hard. Um, but finance itself, like money itself, I have this different perception of money where it's, it's for this life, for this world. You know, once, you know, if I die or w- when that happens, I can't take that to the grave with me. Um, so I want to maximize what I can get out of this world itself and money. Sure. It's, it's a thing that can create, comfort and you know an easier way to live but I think gaining knowledge is a bit more important Mm. Um, and that's something that like I I, I really believe in and so for me spending that one year struggling um, was worth the extra year of you know hey here's something that hasn't been done before that I was able to create Um, and so falling in that path I think just naturally the money was okay well I can get a stipend. I, can, I had scholarships coming in as well. So it wasn't too big of, uh, of a burden. But it did become difficult because, you know, the stipend only covers your tuition. It doesn't really give you any funding or anything to support yourself. Mm. Um, so I was really reliant on my, my, my family, like my, my parents. Um, and a lot of people, um, you know, uh, might be more hesitant to do that. And it's always bugged me. I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be so reliant on my dad. Like he's almost, he's pushing 70. I don't want to be doing that. Um, And he worked endlessly just so he can support the family. But that gave me enough of a push of, because I knew it would make him happy that, Hey, you know what? Like there's, we don't have any other doctors in our, in our, in our family. So I'm the first one. I'm like, I know my dad would be happy about that. He'd be proud of that. He'd feel as if um, you know, everything he's done has paid off right so something like that felt really good and i'm like you know what it's okay i'll take the year and i'll worry about that he's always like you know don't worry about finance i'll worry about the other stuff you focus on yourself
0: mm. um so you're so- always optimizing for kind of learning and following your curiosity more so than like status money all the be yeah more, i, more I don't think 100
1: yeah. i don't think the status or anything has anything to do with it yeah and like
0: i i say i'm, I'm so
1: bad like they the, the first time they called me, like, Dr. Atamadi, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, but I, I think you just have to, you can't fall into a trap of um, letting society put a standard on you. Uh, it's it's really what do you believe in, and if you cherish those values, it doesn't matter what industry you're working in or what you're doing. It's it's still you that's, that's presenting.
0: Yeah. And do you feel like you had a really good sense of what was important to you and your values when you were younger? Or is that just I, something that becomes more clear over time?
1: I think it's something that became more clear and changed as I grew. Mm. Um, when I was a kid, you know, if if my dad bought me a bike or something, I didn't know what he had to do to pay for that bike or how difficult it was for him or what sacrifices he made. But as you get older, you kind of see those things and you kind of value things differently. Um, so I think you're... The nature of your value stays the same, but the way you approach it kind of changes over time. Yeah, yeah,
0: cool. And then you know, one one last question around your childhood is sure. around this whole um, idea around identity, right? You came to Canada when you were five years old. You talked about your early experiences um, not being able to to speak English and trying to assimilate and uh, adapt to a new culture and environment. Has that um, Perspective as an outsider been something that you feel like you've carried throughout your your life and your career Or is that something that hasn't really been at the forefront of how you see yourself?
1: Truthfully, it hasn't bugged me in any way. Um, it, it's not something that crosses my mind um, You know, I walk down the street and you, you see different cultures in Toronto, right? Mm. From, ev- from every corner of the country you see people here um and you kind of just become a part of that it's it, you don't see yourself as different than the person beside you in any way it's the person beside you is another person living their life doing the same things yeah. that you're doing maybe in a different industry or in different ways but you, you're not independent you're all working towards you know you're all living the same life mm. um we're all on the same earth it, it doesn't really make much of a difference for me on that front yeah
0: great to hear um and kind of going back to your career journey, so you mentioned you you spent some time at Bombardier working in transportation, and then you worked at Pratt, Pratt & Whitney um, in the aerospace industry. How did you ultimately make the decision to uh, kind of work a more traditional corporate job to um, eventually going to Next36, which is Canada's, um, you know, one of Canada's top accelerators, and tap into this entrepreneurial spirit that you have?
1: Sure. Um, so Pratt & Whitney was, was an interesting story. Um, that was in the final year of my PhD. So uh, I, I, got a, I got a job at Pratt & Whitney to design some of their engines, uh, some of their parts, and um, some of their CAD drawings and things like that. And it was an evening shift. So it was from 4 p.m. till 12 in the morning, uh, full time. And I was doing my PhD from 8 in the morning till about 3 o'clock at school at Ryerson every day. So 8 o'clock till 3, I was at school, Ryerson. 3 to 4, I traveled to Mississauga. 4 to 12 in the morning, I'd be at Pratt & Whitney working. And then I'd go back home to Markham. And I had this idea that I was working on, which eventually became the business I'm currently working on. Um, And I was working on that for a couple hours in the nighttime as well. But what I realized from, you know, and and that was hell. Like, it was was a full year of absolute hell. But, you know, I I learned a lot from Pratt & Whitney, had some funding that way coming in to support myself, my education, um, and that kind of went back to you have to work if you know to support yourself. If you're not well off, you need to put the effort into it. Um, and so, I, I kind of had this I, this this project that I was working on, which is this energy efficiency carbon monoxide safety system, um, an idea that kind of sprouted from my dad's work. And when when I was a Pratt, all I could think about was this. I'm like, I just want to get home, but, you know, one o'clock in the morning so I can work on this project. Um, it's, and I kind of saw little steps moving forward. And I'm like, this is really interesting. This could become something. I started doing the research. I was a PhD student, so research was natural. Um, and I'm like, you know what, this is something that doesn't exist. Maybe I can create this. But the time management was impossible because if I wanted to create a full working prototype or technology, well, I needed more time. And I'm like, you know what, I can't quit the PhD. And, you know, it's my, my last year. I'd rather just push this through and finish it. But this, this job, I could leave the job. Um, so I, I quit Pratt & Whitney, and now I had the full day, the rest half of the day, to work on the business. Um, and at that point, it, was still, it wasn't still a business. I was still working on the technology side of, of the company. And so a, as that evolved and, you know, I finished my PhD, um, there was this application online on Facebook, believe it or not, of Next Canada. And it literally said, are you the next 36? And I was looking at this and I'm like, what is, are you the, next 30, like, what is the next 36 program? And it, it just sounded really cool. And I'm like, okay, well, what is some entrepreneurial initiative? Okay, when's the application due? It was literally due 11, like 59 p.m. that night. And it's like 8 o'clock. And I'm like, okay, well, I've got like four hours to put an application in do I want to do it? Do I not want to do it? Is it worth it? Is it not worth it? And I'm like, you know what? I have nothing to lose. Um, I might as well just try. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. At least it's something that I put some effort into might open a different door. Um, and granted that it has. So went through the program, um, got accepted and there was this intense weekend of interviews that we did through December, uh, and came out as one of the finalists that got accepted into the program amongst, you know, 35, 36, other amazing, amazing people. And uh, last, so last year throughout the summer, went through the program and it's very founder focused. Uh, so they help you develop yourself as a good founder, the tools that you need to develop a good as a good founder. So you can, you know, do whatever that you want to do afterwards at a great level. Um, and it just became this this part that, this, this background of um, how do you build a business? What does it take to build a business that I didn't have? I had the technological background, but not so much the, the founder experience and what it was going to take. And this program kind of put some of that into perspective for me. Went through the program and then came out of it, got accepted into the Creative Destruction Lab. And that's something that we're going through right now, actually. Next week is the final, final date of the program. And it's, it's been absolutely amazing. And this, they, they help you more with scaling your business. And it was a very nice transition coming from Next Canada, developing that founder capability, understanding what it is I need to be doing as a founder, and then going into CDL, which allows me to scale the business, taking those skill sets from both Next Canada and the technology and scaling it.
0: Mm -hmm. Very neat. And um, for those who don't know, Sobe Systems really focuses on, um, right now it's one product, right? The Everest Response System. Yeah, so we have that.
1: We're actually launching another one in the next month or so, which is going to be really exciting.
0: Right. And Everest, it provides 24-7 real-time monitoring of the HVAC system, um, specifically to help provide uh, alerts if there are carbon monoxide leaks. Uh,
1: That's a a part of it, yeah. So that's how the idea started. Um, If you want, I can give you a little bit of a background on that as well. So a couple of years ago, my dad, so he's, in, he's a heating cooling contractor, and he went into a house. He got a call for a service, went to a house, uh, and the house, you know, the family was there, and they were feeling a bit sick. They didn't know what the issue was, but they had some rattling coming from the heating system. Um, and so, you know, they, they called the technician. My dad goes in, and he realized that there was actually a carbon monoxide leak from their furnace leaking into their airways. Um, and it was at a concentration that wasn't high enough to trigger your alarms to go off but it's high enough to allow uh, prolonged exposure effects of carbon monoxide. And so he came home and he told me about this. And I'm like, well, what did you do? He's like, well, i shut off the system, um, obviously. And then I told him to go to the hospital. And I'm like, well, shouldn't there? What if there was a system that could just shut it off automatically? And he's like, well, you know, I've been in the institute for quite a while. I haven't seen that. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll do some research and see if I can create. It. And that's what I was doing in the middle of the night, researching that, figuring that stuff out. Uh, and I realized, you know, it didn't exist, and we could, we could create this device. And so that's how it started, as a carbon monoxide safety system for the HVAC. Uh, built a prototype, started working literally out of the garage, um, and it was absolutely amazing. But as I started talking to the customers, like the HVAC contracting companies, I realized, okay, what else is it that they want? Where's the market really headed? And preventive maintenance was really one big aspect of what they were trying to get into, the energy efficiency side, how do you reduce GHG emissions? Um, and really, how can they get proactive alerts as opposed to having to, you know, wait until there's a carbon monoxide incident? How do they know that there's going to be an incident before it happens, um, or other faults of the HVAC system? And that's kind of what the technology has really become. It's an entire preventive maintenance tool for heating, cooling contractors that provides them the ability to do remote diagnostics um, and, you know, monitor this, the, the HVAC systems remotely. So that they don't have to dispatch tr- a truck or um, a technician to go to the house, figure out what the issue is, uh, and then you know if they don't have the parts, they need to go back bring the parts for you, and it becomes kind of a customer service based on that front as well. Yeah. But for the homeowner, we still have that we're providing that safety side as well with with the carbon monoxide aspect. So in the event there is a leak, our system will still shut down the heating system for you. Um, Because what we found is the carbon monoxide detectors that you have in your homes and the thing that people don't recognize is by the time these alarms go off, you're already exposed to that gas. Um, And granted, yes, there are a lot of different sources of carbon monoxide, but the heating system is the one that runs the most in your winter. And that's one of
0: the, it's about 30% of the reasons of carbon monoxide poisonings. Mm -hmm. And the actual device is installed within the HVAC system, correct?
1: Yes, it's installed right inside your ductwork. So, uh, it's right at the source, monitors the behavior system right at the source itself, as opposed to somewhere arbitrary.
0: Cool. And can you share a little bit more about um, where things are at in the lifespan of the company? Um, share a little bit more about the pilot that, that's starting to kick off. Sure. Um, I'll give you the information that I can. So, um, we
1: just we, we signed a pilot with one of the, well, the largest HVAC contracting company in Canada. Um, and it's it's very, very exciting. They like the preventive maintenance aspect of the technology, particularly for the reason of not having to dispatch technicians continuously to a home. Um, and so we're gonna be launching uh, 100 units in Toronto in the GTA area. Uh, we already have some units installed um, that we were running on like our own private pilots. Um, and some of them are with the fire prevention officers and the public fire safety officers as well. So we've actually installed these technologies in their own homes. Um, because they see the the safety value of it. And that was actually a really interesting positioning of the product because um, one thing that we found was um, people really don't recognize the health effects of carbon monoxide. And they think, you know, it's not going to happen to me, it's not going to happen to me until it does. And when it does, the results aren't always, you know, okay, I'm going to go to the hospital. They can be quite catastrophic. Um, And particularly about a year ago, uh, last year in the winter, a uh, father comes home from work, like five minutes from where my parents live. A uh, father came home from work, and his wife and two children were completely unconscious. Takes them to, takes them to the hospital, well, calls 911. They get to the hospital. When the mother wakes up, um, the child's dead. Their child has passed away, literally because there was a carbon mon- They turned on their furnace, and there was a carbon monoxide leak. And the, the, the heating system regulates your entire air in 10 to 15 minutes. So their entire air was completely filled with carbon monoxide when, when the father arrived. So, people don't really recognize these. And like, you know, the HVAC system, yes, it's it's this big thing that's downstairs in your basement, you don't pay too much attention to it. But people really need to, you know, monitor it quite, not, you know, every single day, but it's something that you should take care of, at least change the filters when they need to be changed. Um, and not only is that helping your own pockets, you're gonna pay less on, on your monthly bills on your energy costs. But at the same time, um, you know, your greenhouse gas emissions are going to be less, we're going to put less pollutants into the air, um, our ozone is not going to deplete as quickly as it is. So there, there's a lot that goes into the HVAC system that people just don't recognize and it's a big asset of your home that you should be monitoring.
0: Mm. So what else could um, homeowners or, or consumers actually do to proactively solve this until soapy systems are installed in all ductwork everywhere?
1: So, so one of the biggest things that homeowners can do is make sure they change their filters. Um, it's, it's literally the, one of the number one causes of HVAC breakdowns. Mm. Um, make you, you, we, we talk, we've talked to some of these HVAC companies and they're like, you know, we'll get a call to go in to check a system and they'll say, you know, my system hasn't been working, it's not turning on. Um, and we'll say, okay, did you change your filter? Did you check your filter? And the, the homeowner might say, you know, no. But when that contractor gets there, it's, it's completely blocked off. There's no mm. air coming through. And that creates a dangerous, um, it could create a very dangerous uh, circumstance for your uh, for your heating system. Yeah. It is combustion at the end of the day. So mm. um, being just, just monitoring it, your, your filter is really the biggest thing. Mm. And then you can monitor your energy bills. If all of a sudden you see your energy bills spiking for some reason, um, well, you can check to see why maybe there's something that's going on with your heating
0: or cooling equipment that could be causing that. Mm. Got it. Thank you for that um, public service announcement. <laughs> Not a problem. Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll wrap up shortly. Um, but one of the things that I, I noticed when doing some research is you had this really great quote about Bruce Lee or from Bruce Lee. And it's about limits. Um, it goes, if you always put limits on everything you do, physical or anything else, it will spread into your work and into your life. There are no limits. There are only plateaus, and you must not stay there. You must go beyond them. Yeah. So, given that you've um, ventured out to start SoBe Systems, still relatively early, how has this experience pushed or challenged your limits? Every way possible,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, both from like an emotional, mental, physical state, um, financial state, everything. Uh, like, so growing up again, I was, I was very close with my family, right? Close with my brother. Um, and we got closer as we got older, as, as, as we grew. But, um, you know, I've had to make sacrifices and put those, some of those things aside now. You know, like I, I see my parents once a week or once every two weeks. Um, so those are things I've had to do in order to make sure that I can continue growing, the company can continue growing. Uh, so you make these sacrifices, you have to, you know, in, in any in any system, there has to be some form of equilibrium. If you want to put more information in, well, something has to give. Um, you can't keep filling a water bottle. You have to finally put a hole in it where there's water leaking so you can put more water in. Um, and so the company itself, like it's gotten to points where we're like, okay, well, we don't know what to do with the technology. How do we do it? Okay, so let's get out of a comfort zone. Let's go make some phone calls. I was never one to pick up and cold call people before, but now you know, give me give me a phone phone book, and I'll just call whoever you'd like. Um, not on prank calls, of course, but <laughs> um, that's what it's become. And to get to the point where you're pushing outside of your limits, you need to get uncomfortable. Um, if you're comfortable, then everything is going to plateau. You know, you go to the gym, you pick up five pound weights, you do ten reps. Okay, tomorrow go there and pick up seven pound weights and do ten reps. If you go there and continuously pick up the five-pound weights, well, you're going to be stuck on the five pounds and you'll never know if you can do the seven pounds. So it's always about pushing yourself. And I kind of put that into everything I do, even rock climbing or if I go to the gym. It's, okay, can I push my physical state? Can I push my mental state? Uh, Can I really push this business? And I think it all goes down to an internal process as well. You kind of start it within yourself and then that has an effect elsewhere, into your business, Mm. into your daily life.
0: And if you... Could you actually pinpoint where that internal drive comes from, or when you have you always
1: had that? So that's that's a really tough question, <laughs> um, and I I really don't know how to answer it except that when you find something that you love doing, right? Um, just just do it. Mm. Don't don't think about okay, what are other people going to think about me or. Um, you know, what if I look bad in front of other people? You, you shouldn't be thinking about things that way if you want to try something that's different. Um, you know, the biggest, the biggest companies came in because people thought outside of the box. People thought of things that other people said were impossible. You know, go, rewind 10 years ago, it's don't get in a car with a stranger or don't go into someone's house you don't know. And today, it's get in a car with the perfect stranger, go sleep at someone's house that you don't know, eat their food. Like it, The whole dynamic has changed because people have pushed certain boundaries of what we believe in and what we, uh, what we think life needs to look like. Um, and so for myself, I, I can't pinpoint exactly what it is that drives me, but I think it's just the sense of wanting to be able to show what I can be, like be the best that I can be. Um, and it, I don't think that matters in what industry. And if you can really prove that you're the best at what you can do or be the best that you can be, well, the rest of it, if, and if you don't care about you know the money and things like the status, I think it becomes like an internal satisfaction type thing that you can
0: really mm. fulfill. Yeah, And maybe yeah, that's more. what I'm looking for. Like that internal motivation versus extrinsic motivation. Yeah. Yeah. And final two questions are, how would you advise someone who might be you know, not as clear on what they want to do, how would you advise them to find their passion or figure out what they want to dedicate their their work to?
1: So if I kind of take a personal look on this, like I'm not passionate about HVAC systems, right? I'm not passionate about designing an aircraft engine. I, it's not something that I'm passionate about. It's something I do because one, I need to make a living. Um, but I enjoy doing it. There's this there's there's sense of, you know, comfort in doing that. Um, but starting like HVAC systems, like in, in this industry, I didn't know a single thing about it. I didn't think that I would love it more than sitting and designing aircraft engines, right? I was literally doing what I, was, what I studied to do for 10, 15 years. And all of a sudden I'm like, I don't want to do this because I have this other idea I'm working on. I think the ability to create something is, is a beautiful thing. Um, and, you know, humans have that capability. We can create things from our thoughts and we can, you know, technology nowadays allows us to bring these thoughts into something physical. We can 3D print them. And I think just finding something that you can try. That's how you should, that's how I would look at it. Try something. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't have an exact passion. I don't know what to do, you know. And, and there's this huge thing right now of people finishing school and going, I don't know what, what I want to do afterwards, right? Or I don't even know what I want to study in school. And they go through 10 different things. Um, it's Pick one. Try it. You'll realize if you like it or not. You're still young. If you're in your 20s, when you're studying school, you're in your 18, like early, late teens or early 20s. Try something. It won't be a waste of your time because either way, you're going to get a skill set that you can transfer to something else. Um, And then you'll realize really what what you like doing. Five years down the road, I may hate HVAC systems. I may be completely (laughs) fed up with them. (laughs) But right now, what I'm enjoying is the process. It's that learning process of every day I'm learning something new. And I think Mm -hmm. if you think of it that way, you might enjoy anything you do. Think of it as a learning process of growing yourself.
0: Yeah, and enjoying the process, not being too obsessed on the end outcome or or the goal that... um you might be working towards, but enjoying the process while you're in it, have fun, Absolutely, your curiosity my
1: curiosity. My company could fail 100%, right? There's a, huge, like, there's, there's a bigger chance that it can fail than it can grow. The likelihood of it is just there. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if it does, everything that I've learned and the way I've grown myself from you know, just meeting people, learning from other people, um, gaining mentors and advisors, like, all of that has grown my own abilities. And so whatever comes next, naturally, I'll be better at it.
0: Yeah. Great. And for anyone who wants to um, follow you and see what, what, what you're up to with Sobe Systems, what are the best ways for folks to find you on the internet?
1: So I think LinkedIn's probably the, the best way to approach me. Yeah. Um, I'm not too big on social media. But funny enough, I'm at, I'm at the, uh, um, the export Canada, uh, challenge today, and they, they had a panel, and one of the uh, one of the panelists was mentioning you need to have a digital presence in this world. Um, so, so I think that's something that that that's one of my weak things right now. I I'm not very active on social media, um, and that's something that I probably should change at least for for the face of the business. That's something I've been working on. So,
0: but right now the best way LinkedIn. would be
1: LinkedIn. Great,
0: thank you so much, Soban. That was amazing.
1: Appreciate the problem. time again. Thanks so thank much, you. Justin. Really appreciate it.
0: hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.